Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. I want to say that we should save the brain forest, <laughs> right? Because it disappeared without us noticing. I mean, I don't feel like there's anybody, almost, there, there just aren't a lot of people talking about the value of this natural resource, which is childhood spent figuring things out on your own and making things happen. And when it disappears, our, our world is gasping. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. This episode is coming from New York City, where I am delighted to be joined by Lenore Skenazy. Lenore is one of the sanest voices in social debates in the US right now, especially on issues relating to childhood, the cult of safety, and why it's actually a really bad idea to wrap children up in cotton wool. She is president of Let Grow, a nonprofit that promotes childhood independence and childhood resilience. And that was born out of her Free Range Kids movement. And Lenore founded Free Range Kids shortly after a huge controversy enveloped her when she allowed her nine-year-old son to ride the subway from New York City on his own and caused an absolute media sensation and storm. She was dubbed America's worst mum. Uh, since then, she has been writing, speaking and campaigning on the right of children to live more freely and the right of parents to have more freedom too. She is, in her own words, fighting the belief that our children are in constant danger from creeps, kidnapping, germs, grades, flashes, frustration, failure, baby snatchers, bugs, bullies, men, sleepovers and the perils of the non-organic grape. Lenore, welcome to the show. Thank you. I think we're done. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. You got it. You summed me up. Figured it out. Right. There's the history. Done. Right. So talking of history, mm. I wanna the, the first thing I want to ask you about, which I know you've spoken about a huge amount and you've spoken to me about it, in fact. Uh, but just for those listeners who haven't heard this story, can you just take us back to your decision <laughs> to basically leave your nine-year-old kid <laughs> in the streets of New York City uh, in the belief that he would negotiate his way home and not get into any bother. Can you just tell us how that idea came about and, and how it turned out? Sure. Um, first of all, it wasn't even my idea. It was our son's idea. He was nine at the time. And he started asking me and my husband, who you never hear mentioned as America's worst dad or anything, <laughs> yeah. just he's totally scot-free, if we would take him someplace he'd never been before and let him find his own way home on the subway. And uh, we have an older son, still do, I'm knocking on wood, who hadn't asked us this. So we had to think about whether it made sense. My older son calls himself the control group. <laughs> anyway, so uh, we decided, yeah, you know, we were on the subways all the time. That's how we get around. I know you call it the tube. So one sunny Sunday, I took him to a really lovely 
uh, the subway stop isn't lovely, but it's right underneath a really fancy uh, department store called Bloomingdale's. And I left him in the handbag department there and I went one way and he had to go downstairs. Down, It's right over the subway station. So you go down to the subway. He had to ask somebody directions. He did. He talked to a stranger. Didn't The stranger didn't decide to suddenly abduct him because the child was talking to him. Why not? Hell, they're free. And, um, and he took a couple of, uh, you know, he went down a couple of stops. He got out. He took a bus across town. He came into our apartment levitating with pride and, you know, excitement, you know, feel like you're a grown up finally. And I was a newspaper reporter, a columnist at the time. <sighs> Another story. But um, anyways, I didn't actually write about it right away because it didn't strike me as any kind of big deal. Mm. Um, and I wasn't doing it for a column or for publicity or anything. But uh, a couple months later, when I didn't have anything to write, I said, should I write? I said, my editor, should I write about, is he taking the subway by himself? And she said, yeah, why not? It's a nice local story. So I wrote why I let my nine-year-old ride the subway alone. And two days later, I was just on every possible television talk show defending myself. And um, that was that. So uh, so it was his idea, but you yeah. were fairly happy to go along with it. And you did that in the belief that if an adult were to engage with him, it would probably be to help him. Because the, the, the idea I think we have in this kind of stranger danger era and this notion that kids are uniquely historically vulnerable is that we're surrounded by adults who are a threat. But I guess the the most the more honest understanding of how mm-hmm. contemporary society works is that the vast vast majority of adults would help a child. For sure. I mean, stranger danger is sort of looking in the absolute wrong direction. If you're thinking about danger to kids, the vast majority of crimes against kids, whether it's beating them or sexually abusing them, are Wow, what's this getting to be a depressing conversation? But they're, they're, you know, by somebody that they know. And in fact, weirdly enough, I think they did a study once a long time ago. Like, even if you ask a psychopath for directions, they were like, oh, well, let's see, you got to take the green line. And then that's a local line. You know, people love to give directions. And, and the idea for me is that there's safety in numbers. I mean, the yeah. fact that he's in this city with so many people, uh, rather than making him you know, vulnerable means that you're, you know, more or less surrounded by people who are going to help you. Yeah. So was the reaction all bad? I know it was America's worst mom. You were on all the news channels. There was a huge, huge debate about it. I remember it at the time. I'm sure many, many people do. But some of the reaction was positive. Some people were happy that you did this. Yeah. No, I mean, so I started the blog the weekend after the, you know, I was on all these shows and I called it Free Range Kids. And I said that same thing, you know, I I don't think our kids are in constant danger. And people felt relieved to have a place where they could go and gather and say, you know, I thought that too. And I love my childhood and I want to give my kid that kind of freedom. But there was something about being able to say that I was game to take my eyes off him that I didn't realize that in itself, not even that it was New York or the subway, you know, crime, whatever. It's just taking your eyes off your kids in itself has become a sort of crime. And it took me, I mean, I really have been like groping with this, just so the wrong word, but thinking about this idea for 12 years now, the nine-year-old is now 21. And what the thing that people used to ask on the talk shows for about the first five years uh, was at some point in, in any conversation, it would get to where the interviewer would say, okay, very well, you had a great time, your son's happy, it's wonderful, but how would you have felt if he never came home? And I always had a terrible response to that. I was like, oh, I got my spare son at home. You know, it was never 
or I'd say like, I would have felt bad, you know, it's like, duh. So, um, it took me a very long time to realize why I didn't have an answer was because that's not a question. Yeah. How would you feel? They know exactly how I'd feel, you know? And so why were they asking? And they were asking because they had to get back to the script. (laughs) And the script is if nothing bad did happen, that's not the story we expect to hear on the news. That's not why we turn on Mm -hmm. the news. We turn on the news to hear something horrible that happened because a mother took their eyes off their kids. So, So because nothing bad happened, we had to go into the subjunctive or whatever you call it grammatically. We had to go into, well, what if he hadn't come home? So that at least it was hewing as close as possible to the script. And actually... When I, when I interviewed, oh, yeah, everybody's interviewing everybody else around here, but when I interviewed Frank Verady, who writes for you, who wrote How Fear Works, he said that, um, you know, fear is, has been with us forever. But what's different now is that there's certain stories that we get used to hearing, almost like if you read a romance novel, the secretary, you know, the mousy secretary who, you know, goes home and eats crackers for dinner and has no friends. Um, but somehow when she takes, you know, down her hair and takes off her glasses, va, va, boom. <laughs> and the, you know, and the, the industrialist who strides through the door and is usually just ordering her around suddenly realizes, wow, she's a knockout. And if at the end he said, but I'm going to go marry the millionaire that I grew up with and we went to college together and the mousy secretary is left eating her, her crackers, that would be a terrible romance novel. And we would go, we throw it across the room mm. because that's not what we want. And, and weirdly, we've determined that there's a story that we want from the news now, and the news keeps giving it back to us. And so even if there's a kid, I mean, every year at the beginning of the school year here in America, and I'm assuming also in your country, there's always a story about a kid who gets dropped off at the wrong bus stop by the new bus driver. It's a new kid. He's crying. He had to walk three blocks home. He was confused. It was awful. And when they do this story on the news, the the reporter says, Oh my God, let's talk to the mom. And the mom says, I'm just so grateful. Anything terrible could have happened. Let's talk to the police. We're just very, very lucky. Let's talk to the kid. I could have been kidnapped. You know, let's talk to me. Uh, let's throw it to the anchor man. Anchor man, what do you think? It's like, well, that's a very lucky story. And it's not a lucky story. Mm-hmm. It's a normal story. Things don't always go right. And for the vast majority of times, they're going to be fine. But once again, you have to turn a normal everyday story into peril or near peril because we want to think of kids as either about to be snatched or almost snatched. And I don't know why, but that's a story we love. So I'm going to ask you the why question why? now. So uh, we, have, we have this script. <laughs> Just said. <laughs> as you say, we have this script and everyone loves the script. We have this story and everyone wants to be faithful to this story of doom and danger and children being vulnerable. Um, we can talk in a, in a minute about how realistic all that is, and it, it's not really no, realistic No, I have amazing statistics. We're yeah, like 50 that, year crime low in my country. Exactly. Yeah. So we want to hear about that. But the, the, the first thing I wanted to ask you is how you think this shift came about, because there has been a shift, because people over the age of 35 mm. will often say, when I was a kid, we could do whatever we wanted. There's, there are now even memes, you know, people will share memes <laughs> right. of, you know, kids. How did we survive the yeah. 70s? We drank from the hose. Exactly. And we it will, didn't wear helmets. It'll be some crazy photo from the 70s or 80s, and it will say, right. like this, if your childhood was as crazy as shown in this photograph. So people like 
being nostalgic for mm-hmm. that period when mm-hmm. kids were freer. And when I was growing up, uh, the story I tell people is that me and my brothers, I had five brothers, wow. we, we were never allowed in the house, <laughs> never mind not being allowed out. We were kicked out during the summer holidays right, and right. were forbidden from coming home until uh, lunch because my mother had things to do. So there's, a, there's been a palpable shift, a dramatic shift. What do you think is the key thing or some of the key contributing factors to that? I'll give you some, and then I don't even know if I'll go to the the deepest of the deep ones that I'm trying to get to now, which involve the religion, weirdly. Right. But the, the ones that are pretty obvious are that uh, when you and I are growing up, uh, there was less media around. And, of course, what does media do? Media has to get eyeballs to make money, right? They're not there to inform you. They're there to make money. And so the most compelling stories get the most people to watch. And if you have an intensely competitive media environment like we do now, you're just going to have to be pinging at 11 all the time with the worst possible story, with the most immediate video, with the most tears and the most fears. Mm. And so, you know, your brain absorbs all this and your brain works like Google. And so if you ask, gee, is my kid safe at the bus stop? Up come the most easily retrieved stories, which generally are the ones that you heard on the news because there was a picture, there was a weeping mother, there was, you know, an ambulance in the background. And you cannot bring forth the pictures of kids bored walking home from the bus stop, kids bored waiting at the bus stop, the millions and billions of children who aren't hurt on a daily basis at the bus stop. And normally when you ask your brain for search results, they're the most relevant are at the top. You know, mm-hmm. I want to buy cheap mm-hmm. gym shoes. Where do I find them? But but the top results for our brain asking is something safe are the anomalies, are the worst case scenarios. And then your brain thinks, well, if it's that easy to get, if that's that's the picture that pops into my mind, that must be relevant. It's called the availability heuristic, which is such a terrible word. It doesn't mean anything to me, but it means that it's easy to retrieve. And so then you start making your decisions based on what seems to be irrational you know, looking at the facts, but you're only looking at the very worst facts. Sometimes you're looking at facts from 40 years ago, and sometimes you're looking at facts that aren't facts. I remember at the very beginning when I had free-range kids, um, somebody wrote to me and said, I can't believe you let your kid ride the subway alone. Don't you watch Law and Order? (laughs) I'm like, huh? But really, those things are rattling around in there too. And Law and Order, boy, my neighbor was sick and dying and finally died. But And not because of this, but she watched Law and Order. It seemed to never leave her television. Whatever time of day I went over to visit her, she was awake and there was some perp on the loose. Uh, thank God, caught at the end of half an hour, um, who had just, you know, pulled a kid off the street. And it's always, once again, the, the drooling, horrible stranger. So you got the media. We live in a litigious society. You start looking at things like a lawyer. Is that safe? Could I be sued? You know, you get waivers that come home from your school that say, you know, your child will be going across the street today. Are you willing to accept that risk? Gosh, somebody sent me the waiver from the uh, uh, an Easter egg hunt on the campus of University of California at Berkeley. And first of all, they had to wait in line for half an hour because everybody had to sign this waiver. And then it said, do you understand, you know, I accept the fact that this could, there could be some, you know, ill effects, including and, and, and not unincluding, uh, you know, death, dismemberment, you know, despair. And you had to sign that before your kid walked over three feet. There were two eggs on the ground. It's on like AstroTurf. They pick them up. They're not even real eggs. I'm sure that would like, God forbid, salmonella <laughs> or what if one broke and it's traumatic. Um, and then you hand in the eggs and you'd get some candy, which I'm sure was, um, you know, probably sugar free and no nuts. So that was to be with your child at an Easter egg hunt 
where the Easter eggs are placed in front of the children. So, I mean, when you get to that kind of um, legal mindset, mm -hmm. everything, you know, everything seems dangerous, really. If the Easter egg is mm -hmm. dangerous, everything's dangerous. Um, live in an expert society. Experts are there to tell you you're doing it wrong. All the parenting magazines are filled with, the, you know, the hidden danger among this and that. One, one hidden danger you should know is laundry hampers were like the top one danger out of top 10 dangers in your home and one, um, one issue of Parents Magazine, which is crazy um, because a, a wire from the hamper could spring out and scrape your child's cornea. And then, of course, they find some ophthalmologist in New Jersey. It's always New Jersey. Because it's fake, right? Um, who says, oh, we had this, you know, now the child is groping along and has a dog and a cane and it's all because of the laundry hamper, go get rid of yours. And then we have a, you know, a marketplace. And if you have, you had five brothers, okay? And maybe your mom wasn't even working. Maybe she was mm -hmm. at home, was she? Yeah. Okay. So you have one income and at least six children and maybe there are all sorts of girls you're not even mentioning right? so, or a dog anyway so now you have two people often two parents working and often one kid or two kids smaller families that's a lot of money per child yeah. and so you know the market rushes in where there's money to be had and you can get a dollar very easily or even a whatever you guys have, a quid or a euro. I don't know where you guys stand Quid's right now. So. I'm not getting into that. Thank God. <laughs> not my problem. Um, but if it's if there's some money in the wallet of a worried parent, yeah. uh, I can get it out by saying your child is either going to be kidnapped, raped, and eaten, or your child is going to fall behind and not get into Harvard. And either way, you will pay me money to make sure that horrible thing doesn't happen. I find that all very, very convincing. Market forces, media forces, expert intervention, and we can come back to the expertise question later. Um, I think all of those undoubtedly have contributed to this burden people feel in relation to their own children. But one other thing that I often think about is is whether the which these things may also have contributed to hmm. um, is whether the fraying of community networks oh, or sure. local networks creates a situation in which people feel more atomized and therefore feel that the people who surround them might be a threat rather than neighbors or friends that they can turn to. So, for example, when I was growing up, there was you know a relatively strong sense of community on the street that we lived on, on mm -hmm. in particular. You knew that you could dump your child in someone's house if you had to. Sure. You knew that someone would look after your kid and bring them home if something bad happened. Do you think that broader shifts away from societies organized around community life towards ones which mm -hmm. are more individuated, more narcissistic, more identitarian, also kind of contributes to a yes. sense of you, you lost me at identitarian. I don't quite know what that is. But yes, I totally feel what you're saying. And certainly on my block where I was growing up, which is the suburbs of Chicago, you know, there'd be a kickball game in front of my house at night and nobody was worried that the kids were outside. And if I went next door and, you know, got a, a popsicle from my neighbor's house, that was not considered dangerous. And, you know, I, sometimes, sometimes I think that like Halloween is the test market for all the things that we later decide are happening the rest of the year. I mean, if you think that your neighbors who you see every year, hi, how you doing? How's your golf game or whatever it is, you know, oh boy, looks like it's going to rain are, you know, just waiting for October 31st when they get to poison your child to death. You know, <laughs> that's a weird way of thinking of your neighborhood. Um, nowadays, I, I know Halloween isn't as big a deal there, but um, and it's not all nostalgia, like when I was a kid, this and that. But when I was a kid, we went out on Halloween with other kids and you knocked on strangers' doors 
And you weren't constantly worried, don't go into their house and don't eat mm. any unwrapped candy and don't talk to them. And, and nowadays, um, there's parents driving behind their kids so that they wow. can watch their kid interact with their neighbors, <laughs> the people <laughs> that they know. And actually, the weird thing is on Halloween, poisonings don't happen. No child has been poisoned by a stranger's candy on Halloween. Um, sex offenses don't spike up. They don't go down. They're just the, the people who studied it wanted to call Halloween the safest day of the year after they got done researching it. What goes up is car accidents hitting kids. Well, those are the cars that are... <laughs> following the kids to make sure that they're safe. And of course, the, 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 the cops are busy, you know, worrying about the non-dangers instead of worrying about traffic. So when you start thinking of your neighbors and, and you don't know them that well, and you're busy because you do have the two people, you know, working and you get used to driving your kid to school. So they're not outside getting to know the neighbors. You know, you're literally atomized. You're in the atom that is the car, you know, being delivered yeah. like a, like a drug system or something to, to the school. There are, there are lines of cars outside the schools. And I'm assuming this probably happens in Britain too, but here there'll be, there'll be blocks long. I mean, there's like elaborate, systems for like, you know, somebody will open the car door so the child can get out quickly and then they'll close the car door so that the parent can go forward. But sometimes the parent won't go forward because then the parent wants to come around to the side of the car and hug the child <laughs> to indicate, you know, I still love you, even though I haven't hugged you for five minutes. And then, then they get back in the car and then the car proceeds on its way. And then the next car pulls up and there are elaborate systems in the afternoon when somebody stands outside the school with a walkie-talkie and calls each child's name wow. and the child comes forth from the school and is escorted to the car, put in the car, and then the next car comes up and Cindy's mother's here and Cindy comes out. It's Ava's mother here and Ava comes out. I mean, you can't get more individuated <laughs> than yeah. that. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spiked publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. So I want to ask you about something you mentioned earlier, facts that aren't facts. So, for example, no kid has been poisoned on oh, yeah. Halloween with mm -hmm. candy. and But there are numerous other facts that people think are facts, but which are not facts. The main one being, I guess, that children are facing unprecedented dangers today. But isn't it actually yeah, the case it. that kids have it pretty good? Right. My favorite, uh, you know, because who, who trusts me? America's worst mom. But if you Google... Um, there's never been a safer time to be a kid in America. There's a really great Washington Post article that makes that same um, claim. And it's not just that they're safer from, look at, you know, diphtheria, gone, polio, not a problem. Gosh, on Twitter the other day, I saw a picture of a kid born with uh, from congenital syphilis. Ooh, ooh, very painful picture to look at. I couldn't believe the kid was alive. So not, not to even mention, you know, the diseases that are at bay, the famine that we're not dealing with. Um, the the war and chaos that aren't on our shores. But in terms of crime, uh, America is back to the crime rate of about 1963 or 67, depending on which graph you look at. And um, then people say, well, of course we're safe now because we don't let our children do anything. And I was like, well, yes, but the adults are safer too. I mean, uh, burglary, rape, arson, murder, 
um, they're all down, even against adults, and we're not helicopter parenting ourselves. <laughs> so it's it's almost hard to believe. I mean, it's literally hard to believe because you look at um, polls when they ask, is crime going up or down? And the majority of people keep thinking that crime is going up. But actually, you know, it peaked around 93 and it's been going down so dramatically. And in, in this city where we're sitting now, New York City, in 93, 1993, there were about 2,000 plus murders in a year. And that just seemed normal. I mean, that, that's America for you, right? Mm. Woo. Um, but now it's about, uh, it's between two and 300. Right. Wow. That's, that's an enormous yeah. change. And rather than exulting and saying, wow, kids, you know, go out. There's never been a safer time to be a kid in America. Instead, we go, oh, we can't do it now. Times have changed. So there is this... Uh, enormous gaping disparity between the reality that children face, which is that they live past the age of five, which they didn't always do. Right. Uh, child mortality is virtually collapsed. Um, they don't go hungry. They don't get diseases, mm -hmm. um, you know, for the most part. And they're safer from crime. So these, all these good news stories mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. out there, but we don't seem to talk about them very often. There's right. a disparity between that reality and then uh, the way in which people behave and the way in which people deal with kids and, and what they allow them to do and what they don't allow them to do. So uh, one question I always have when I think of people like you, in fact, is why the reasoned approach doesn't always cut it's through. So, so you yeah. can have the statistics, you can have the facts, you can have the graphs. It doesn't and matter else. to anybody, I know. So uh, w why is this culture, do you think, resistant to that kind of uh, reasoned analysis of where we're actually at in relation to ki kids and their fortunes. There's so many ideas that I've been thinking about to try to figure that out for myself. I mean, when I tell people statistics don't matter, but here's my favorite statistic, which is that if for some reason you wanted your child to be kidnapped and I think held overnight by a stranger, how long would you have to keep them outside without you next to them uh, for this to be statistically likely to happen. Do you know the answer? No. Okay, actually, it was a guy in Britain who, who did the math for me, um, a guy named Warwick Cairns, uh, who wrote How to Live Dangerously. Anyways, take a guess. How long would you have to keep them outside without your eyes on them for them to be statistically likely? It's sort of like how many lottery tickets would you have to buy to be statistically likely to win the lottery? But how, how long? A couple of years? couple of years. Think higher. A few years? Ten years? Mm-hmm. 20? Mm-hmm. 50? You, you got to think kind of magnitude larger than that, Brendan. Hundreds. Uh, 750,000 years, <laughs> oh, wow. right? Yeah. I, I know, and it's an absurd number, but then people <laughs> will always come back at me. This is why it doesn't work. I mean, people go, wow, like, wow, that's a big number. Wow, 750,000 years. Actually, when they got it wrong in the Times, they were quoting me. They said 750,000. I think they said hours. I mean, nobody can comprehend <laughs> it. And I was thinking, like, I don't even know if there's 750,000 hours in a year. So that didn't strike me as good. But anyways, um, People will come back with what rejoinder when you say that? Maybe, but what if it's yours? Hmm. And there's something that yeah. I can't figure out, which is that my mom let me walk to school at age five, and she had quit her job to stay home with the kids. And, um, you know, she's a Jewish mother, so my, we have a reputation as being kind of worried. I mean, that's like our reputation around the world, I think. And, and yet... She let me walk to school by myself. And when I got to the uh, the street I had across, the crossing guard was another kid. And 
as a strange aside, and I can talk about it more later, I married him. That was just strange. We figured that out <laughs> years later. We're both living in New York. Oh, my God, you were my crossing guard. But anyways, the point is that she let me go without her sitting there and going like, oh, but what if she's murdered? I'll never be able to live with her. How would I feel if she never came home? That was not the question then. And so how did we get to the point where you have to go to the very worst case scenario in your brain to be considered a decent parent and then you start doing it automatically. It's like, I better cut up the hot dog. What if she chokes? I better not, you know, I better put them in the five point harness. There's kids in, in very elaborate harnesses in a little stroller just to walk to the corner mm. now. And I think it's the same impulse behind it, which is that you could never forgive yourself if. And so, first of all, you're going to that dark place by rote, almost by catechism, we've been told to always think of the very worst case scenario. Why would you do that? What about Elizabeth Smart? Why would you do that? What about Aton? Um, and then there's this idea that there's no absolution. And this is where I get into very um, mushy territory for me, because I've just been talking to a religion scholar about this. But in an, in an era where it's not that we're a godless society, it's not that there's no religion, but religion covers an ever-shrinking area of authority in our lives. It doesn't, you know, it used to tell us what we ate, you know, who you slept with, what you wore, what you could say, what your jobs could be. And and now it, it's still there, but it has, um, it, it's, it's covering a smaller swath of our life, which leaves us with all this other area where we sort of have to make our own rules. And, and in the absence of being able to say, God works in mysterious ways, or you know, that's the way fate is, or it's karma. You must have done something in a bad life, but that's nothing you can do anything about it now and next, be good and next life will be good. Um, without any way of putting a tragedy in context and without any way of being absolved of your guilt, um, all you're left with is either you are completely vigilant and nothing bad ever happens or something bad happens and it's all your yeah. fault. Yeah. And, and I don't think it has to do with literally whether you go to church or not um, or whether you pray or not. But when you're in a society that thinks that all we have to do is get a little more information, read that next article in Parents Magazine that tells you that this is dangerous or never feed your kid that or remember one kid once drowned this way, so don't do that. It, you feel like if you have only more and more scientific information, the latest information, you've kept up on it and you're you're absorbing it all and you're making sure that your child never eats that food and you don't put that thing in the microwave and you don't buy them this and you're watching them on the way to school and you're standing next to them at the bus stop. Everything becomes, it's all on you. You are supposed to be in complete control. So if anything bad happens, you are blamed, there is no sympathy, and you are bereft and alone. Mm. And when you talk about community, I think that if you have a community that understands that sometimes bad things happen to good people, sometimes good decisions have bad results, sometimes life sucks and we're going to hold you and cradle you in our arms and pray and, and, and love you even though something terrible happened to your kid, that allows you to let go. And if you think there's going to be none of that, you are alone and you are God for your child and you better watch them every single second. Uh, I actually like the sound of that as an explanation. It's like, uh, you know, absent the kind of community structures that we used to have and the moral structures right. or the moral scaffolding we used to have, which would tell us accidents happen, um, you know, and the moral good of allowing your children to have some freedom 
outweighs the very, very, very small possibility of an accident happening. And that kind of moral framework was actually incredibly beneficial, both for children and adults and for society more broadly. But one thing I wanted to ask you, just following on from what you've just said in relation to the parent becomes God and so has to Mm -hmm. govern and watch over every single facet of their child's life. I wonder if you could tell us how much alone time children get because it strikes me that they get very very little so they're driven to school or they're walked to school they're watched at home they're they're helicoptered into various after school activities and so on are children ever alone are they ever without adults you know i actually don't have any numbers on that but it strikes me that there is very little alone time because we believe that they should be supervised and if it's not by us then we better outsource it to a coach or a, you know a teacher of some sort or a, a nanny or, or some kind of program and we also worry that if they're not in I mean we've, we've sort of been sold a bill of goods we only think that they're learning when somebody is teaching them something somebody that we you know either they're in a program or a, a class of some sort and so they always have to be in sort of student mode being mm. watched over by somebody who is in authority. Yeah. And I don't think they have much free time. And the analogy I, I have barely used. So you tell me if this works because I, I think it's cool, but I don't know if it, it resonates. So I feel like if you flew over the earth in like, I don't know, 1970 or 1980, you'd look down and there'd be all this rainforest, right? And then if you flew over it now, there'd be just these clumps, Mm. (laughs) these small isolated clumps. Like it's been disappearing even without us noticing. Although now now we're aware of the rainforest. But I feel like the same thing happened with freedom (laughs) or at least free Mm. time in childhood. If you flew over my childhood and your childhood, you'd see vast swaths of time when you're out with your brothers or I'm looking for four-leaf clovers or playing kickball or reading a book and nobody cares and... Um, I just have my time to do my stuff. And so did you. And I thought that, you know, I think that that time is extremely valuable in, you know, making friendships, figuring out what you like. Once you like something, you work hard at it. So you learn focus. Once you're with friends, you have to compromise so that you'll have something to do. You'll have to argue and make sure, you know, who decides if the ball is in or out. This is all these kind of social emotional skills that you get when you don't have an adult directing you you're you're at second base now it's time to clean up you bring the snack so now the the analogy i'm trying to use is that i feel that the brain is really enriched by all that free time when you get to figure out what you love to do and play with your friends and get bored to the point where you have to come up with something and you start making something happen so I want to say that we should save the brain forest, <laughs> right? Because it disappeared without us noticing. I mean, I don't feel like there's anybody almost there, there just aren't a lot of people talking about the value of this natural resource, which is childhood spent figuring things out yeah. on your own and making things happen. And when it disappears, our our world is gasping. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm thinking that how do you make something as ineffable as free time and and maybe it sounds dangerous because it's free time and they're not being watched and they're not getting their lessons and they're not learning kuman and they're not you know becoming uh, fencers um how do you make people realize that that's valuable that that something is lost it's funny you should say that because i want the, the the next section i wanted to move on to in relation to things i wanted to ask you about 
is about the unintended consequences of all this stuff. So we can agree, and I'm sure most listeners will agree, that it's crazy. What's going on is crazy. Kids are safe, and we've got to stop treating them as if they're not safe. But then it's worth looking at the consequences, mm -hmm. I think, in different areas of mm -hmm. life. So the mm -hmm. first unintended consequence I wanted to ask you about was children themselves. Because mm -hmm. I completely and utterly agree with you that people seem to underestimate the individual making importance of having that sphere of childhood mm -hmm. in which you spend a lot of time screwing up, like <laughs> making mistakes, Not to mention. Yeah, getting yeah. into scraps, yeah. uh, working out those scraps once right, they're over, right, right. developing a sense of moral autonomy or at least aspiring to moral right, autonomy. Right, and taking little risks and taking risks, what that is. All that stuff. And um, I think... It, that's the area in which you make your first steps towards adulthood. Now, obviously, you need guidance on that road. But without that freedom to take yeah. those risks and to do things and to work things out and to get bored and then make mm -hmm. stuff up, what kind of young adults do we create if they don't have that freedom? Well, you know, it's always correlation. I'm never sure of causation. Um, but anxiety uh, among young people is going up. Um, significantly, I don't have the numbers, but colleges are reporting that their um, their mental health services are they can barely keep up with the demand. And part of that is good. Part of it is that it's not embarrassing anymore to say I'm seeing my shrink or you know I needed a little help. That's great. I like that. But part of it is an inability. You've just gotten so used to somebody being there to help you or to, to prop you up. I mean, there's, there's, here, here's a weird analogy. So there's this thing called walking wings. It's a, it's a device you buy for your toddler when they're learning to walk. And it's like a vest that you put around your baby. And then there's these strings that pull, that, that you can pull up. So the kid is pulled up to a, a standing position like a marionette. Right. And it says on the box that this is, this helps children learn to walk in a more natural way, which is, so obviously <laughs> the opposite of truth. Um, and then it says cuts down on falls. And, um, and then one of the, I watched a video about it. And, you know, one of the statistics that they, they flash at you, it's like the average child falls 17 times a day. Wouldn't you be frustrated if that were you? And I'm like, if I'm falling 17 times a day, I have some serious brain tumor <laughs> and please get me to the scan. But if I'm Two, and I'm falling 17 times a day. That's how I learned to walk. Yeah. And it's part of the process. And I feel like what we've taken out of um, childhood from, from the walking wings on up is those falls. Because when yeah. you look at them, when you, part of the reason is we're with our kids so much that we see the horrible things that they have to go through, the arguments, the frustrations, the sorrows, the, the, the defeats and disappointments are so hard to watch. And also seeing how stupid they are is hard to watch. <laughs> it's hard for me to watch. And my kids are in their 20s. But <laughs> when you're with them, so you want to, you, because you're with them, you intervene. And because you intervene, then you feel like you have to keep intervening because they haven't learned to do those things on their own. And then when you're not there anymore, then they look for somebody else to intervene. And how do you learn to walk if somebody keeps pulling up uh, at you as a marionette and and that's how you walk it's because somebody's pulling you so do you do you make a link as others have done between the kind of cotton wool childhood phenomenon and the the culture of anxious millennials particularly on campus you know the safe space culture this idea that words can be harmful this notion that 
your self-esteem is an, in, is an incredibly fragile thing and needs to be protected against offense and argumentation and opinions you disagree with. Do you see a, not necessarily a, one causes the other in a very simplistic way, but do mm-hmm. you think there is a link between this new generation of adults who seem a bit incapable in certain areas and the cult of overprotecting children? I do see a link between the idea that discomfort is wrong. Like I shouldn't be uncomfortable if I, if my son got a, a trophy for eighth place out of nine in his teen bowling, summer bowling. It wasn't like he was even eager to be a bowler. It's just everybody had to go to the bowling thing as part of camp. And so it's, it's a shiny trophy. It looks like something good happened. And the, the terrible thing is not necessarily that that made him into something like always demanding help and assistance and feeling uncomfortable, you know, just feeling needy. I don't think it did. But what it represents in terms of society is not believing in him, not believing that anybody could handle anything. It's such an insult to our species to say that like you're by the time you're in teen bowling, you're a teen, right? The idea that you cannot see that if you're eighth out of nine, you suck at bowling you know, maybe you want to try harder. Maybe you don't want to bowl anymore. Maybe you don't care because it's just for fun. But the idea that you're so fragile that if somebody didn't say, good job, buddy, well, kind of good. I mean, if you don't mind, you know, nine out of 10 gutter balls, uh, that's a weird way to grow up. Mm. I mean, that's, that's growing up with people totally not believing in you. Mm. And that's really disheartening. And so to come to campus and you know, I'm not sure it goes directly to to any particular safe space or whatever, but I think it does go to the idea that it's normal to need assistance anytime you feel uncomfortable because until now there has been somebody intervening to make sure that you did, deal, did feel comfortable. And I think there's something where you get, like, why do we use the word safe on campus when you're not unsafe just because you're hearing a speaker you don't like or an, an idea yeah. you don't agree with? But they've heard the word safety for everything. You're not safe. I'll drive you there. It's like, well, you are safe. You're not safe. Well, it is the safest times in human history. Parents Magazine had two pieces that I feel um, are really relevant here. Uh, it was an article about play dates, play date playbook. And one of the things they, it was all these questions. What about play dates? And one of them was, uh, your daughter is going over to your, her friend's house for a sleepover, and then you find out that the parents are divorced and only the dad will be home. What should you do? <laughs> what should you do, Brendan? What do they say? They said, uh, no, they said, don't send the kid. They said, let her stay kind of late, but don't let oh, her sleep over, really? which is so horrible because, first of all, you've just said that every divorced man is also, uh, uh, you know, a predator, yeah. which is a bizarre and crazy idea. Um, but then also you've scared her, you know, oh my God, you're around a man. He's not, doesn't have a wife to keep him pinned to the bed, you know, watch <laughs> out. So that was just, you know, that's just one example of like turning a very safe situation into something that you call unsafe. It's a normal situation. Suddenly it's unsafe. And then the, my favorite example from parents magazine ever is part of this play date playbook thing again was the question, your kid is old enough to stay home by herself. And often does. But now she has a friend over. Can you still run to the dry cleaner? And the Parents Magazine, Bible of the, the, the parenting industry, which is already a weird idea, said, absolutely not. You want to be there uh, in case there's a spat. 
You don't want anyone's feelings to get too hurt. So once again, that's a normal situation. Arguing with your friend, you know, I don't want to play this game. I'm so bored. Or I want to be Ken. You be Barbie now. Uh, whatever it is, rewriting that as something that's not safe enough for a child to encounter on their own or or to survive without somebody else helping them. So does it surprise me that kids would grow up with less sense of their um, capacity for resilience? No, it does not surprise me. It used to be the case that we would think it was good to expose children to certain risks. You know, it, well, it, or it or used inevitable. to be inevitable. Let's put in it a, that yeah, way. Right? Not, not purposefully pushing yeah, them into really. a crowded see the alligator, road. Go see if he wants a marshmallow. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, um, you know, for example, it was understood, I think, fairly well that if kids didn't play outdoors and get covered Knock in about. dirt and grass yes, yes, and all right. this gross stuff from nature, they, they would be more prone to allergies, right? They, would they be are, more, yeah, that's the hygiene hypothesis. And yes. then um, it strikes me that similarly in relation to if you don't allow children to occasionally be exposed to conflict or tension or mm-hmm. arguments with their friends, then it's it's the allergy phenomenon again because mm-hmm. you don't allow them to build up their resilience right. for dealing with those situations. Right. So here I have to um, point out that Let Grow, our organization, our nonprofit, has um, two of the people who founded this with me. One is Jonathan Haidt, who wrote Mm -hmm. The Coddling of the American Mind, and one is Peter Gray, who wrote Freedom to Learn. And I I think they're both just fantastic. And John uses an analogy about um, sort of about allergies, which is that uh, there are some things that are uh, fragile in the world that, that, you know, like if you drop a wine glass onto the floor it shatters right and there are some things that are resilient that like if you drop a you know plastic cup on the floor it doesn't get worse it doesn't get better it's it's just fine you know pick it up you can use it again Um, but there are some things that get stronger when faced with some conflict or Mm -hmm. distress and one of those is the immune system Mm -hmm. when you know when you are exposed to more you know not not typhoid germs but just plain old germs of dirt whatever Mm -hmm. you do become more you know robust your your antibodies kick in and now they can handle more and another system that gets stronger um when faced with a little resistance is bones when they break they come back stronger so they say who knows that's what i heard but the other the third system that needs to encounter you know, scrapes, frustration, betrayals, uh, is, is humans, is children. And Peter Gray says that, you know, you're, you, you come out of the womb and you are ready to be wired. Not everything has been wired yet, right? So you're ready to be wired by language and you're ready to be wired by experiences. And experiences used to include a lot of playtime with kids of your age and older and younger outside with some risks and you get used to like no that's not fair or you know stop it that's bothering me and you learn how to read each other and you learn to deal with being chosen last and you learn to you know come up with a new game to play if everybody's bored and all these things make you anti-fragile and without those experiences because you're being driven to a cultivated experience and you're in the backseat of a car, so you're not even encountering the neighborhood or the neighbors. And then you go someplace and somebody tells you you're playing third base and, you know, the game starts now and, you know, everybody shake hands. Um, there's nothing wrong with the, you know, organized sports and after school activities. I did a bunch and I had my kids do a bunch, but they need some time when they just deal with each other and reality. Yeah. And that's that's one of the things we're trying to bring back. 
You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. It's pretty clear that there are some bad unintended consequences for kids from this culture of safety, so-called safety. But there are also, and this is one of the things I find myself worrying about even more there are unintended consequences for parents so you talk a lot about the parenting industry which as you've just said is a strange idea to begin with Mm -hmm. and this extraordinary pressure that parents feel um you know because there is a tendency and i'm sure i have this tendency as well Mm -hmm. to kind of caricature to you know caricature (laughs) the kind of overprotective mum and the kind of um scared dad and all this stuff But I think it's worth just taking a step back and thinking about the extraordinary pressure that the parenting industry and parenting experts place on parents Mm -hmm. to play that kind of omnipresent godlike role in their Mm -hmm. children's lives. So we know that it's pretty bad for kids to always be safe um, or to always be protected in this way. But can you just explain what you think it does to uh, to, to parents. I'd love to. Yeah. Um, I'd really like to talk about what I think it does to moms in particular, because there's some weird number, like mothers today are spending, I think, I can't remember, seven or nine more hours per week on childcare than they did in the seventies when many of them weren't working. (laughs) So, and a lot of that time is driving. But the, if you go back to the idea that there's, you must be watching your kids every single second. Otherwise, if anything goes wrong, it's all on you and there will be no sympathy and, and, and constant blame. The fear of that blame is part of the reason that we have to spend all our time with our kids. And then I told you it's sort of, it redoubles upon itself because when you're with your kids and you realize like, oh my God, they don't watch, they don't cross the street safely enough or they're always bickering, then you feel like you have to spend more time with them because you see them as unsafe. But then there's this societal pressure that is just crazy Mm. on moms. And the best example I can give of this is that parents are constantly moms, but, you know, dads too, but moms do more stuff with their kids. So it's, it's more often the mom. If, if you're not with your kid, uh, you are screamed at. And that goes for, I've heard of moms who've written to me who said, I went shopping with the kids, took them in, brought them out, put them in the car, and I was returning the, you call it a trolley, we call it yeah. a shopping cart. <laughs> I was returning the shopping cart to the store, you know, or to the even the little place that you put the shopping cart in the middle of the parking lot. And I came back and somebody screamed, lady, why weren't you with your kid? Anything could have happened. They could have been, you know, kidnapped or whatever. And I just got another, just got another letter like that yesterday from somebody also um, dealing with the consequences of letting their kid wait in the car a few minutes and they're facing, you know, possible, you know, arrest for negligence or mm-hmm. sometimes you're facing a uh, child protective services investigation. And it's not true that kids die in, waiting in a five minute car wait. But if you've decided that any mom who takes her eyes off her kids is automatically a terrible person who has put her child in harm's way, you're going to come up with any possible way you can to put her down, you know, to teach her her lesson. And there was a cool study done at the University of California, Irvine, by a woman named Barbara Sarneka and her team. And they they gave five different groups of people, five identical groups of people, different scenarios for why a child was left in a car for half an hour. And they told... Uh, group A, that the mom was returning a book to a book drop and she was hit by a truck and so she was knocked unconscious. 
for half an hour. And they told group B, the mom just had to do some work for half an hour. And they told group C, she was exercising, D, whatever. E, she was off to meet her lover for half an hour. And then individually, they, you know, each group doesn't know about the other group. They ask them, what level danger do you think that kid was in? And interestingly, the ones who thought that the mom was knocked out thought that the kid was like at a five level danger. I'm making up the numbers, but I'm, the, yeah. the, the, the point is that, and then if she was working, they were in a six level danger. And then finally, if they were going off to meet her lover, it was at a 10 <laughs> danger. And even though obviously the, circum, the, the the situation is a kid in a car for the same amount of time mm. for all those groups. And so what was, what they were showing is that when we morally, when we, when we make a moral judgment yeah. on the mom, we end up thinking that we're making just a very rational decision about danger, you know, whether the mom was safe enough, but actually we just hate the mom Mm. for being immoral. And so the moms are stuck knowing that there's this enormous judgment out there of them. And and interesting when they did a study and they asked about dads and they said, you know, the the dad was dropping off the book. The dad was doing some work. The dad was doing blah, 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 going to the, to the, to the lover when he was dropping off the book and hit by a car and when he was um, going to work, those had the same level of danger in people's minds. So to them, a dad has to work. Right. But a mother who takes her eyes off her kids because she's just working, that hussy. And so now, even though we're working, we're seeing seven hours more a week with our kids because we really don't think that society is allowing us to take our eyes off our kids without that being considered dangerous, immoral, terrible parenting. That's fascinating. I think that I think the moral judgment on mo- I think it's it's a new form of moral judgmentalism against so-called bad mothers. And it may have been done with fire and brimstone language in the right. past, but now it's done through this language of pseudo expertise. Right. Um, but it, 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 it really strikes me that it's almost like as soon as a woman gets pregnant, <laughs> She becomes the wait, property. Wait, wait, wait! No, no, you're you're thinking too too late on the line. Um, <laughs> it's actually the child, the uh, center for centers for disease control here in America, our health department, uh, issued a warning two years ago that said no women who were off birth control, who weren't on birth control, um, of childbearing age, should have any drinks ever, because what if maybe they were pregnant and they didn't know it and they had a beer. You know, all bets are off. So women were just reduced to being a womb basically yeah. from 13 to about 55. And, and that's all that mattered was you're, you're think, you better be thinking about your child's safety even before you're pregnant, even if you're not pregnant. But it's so regressive. The whole thing yeah. is so regressive. This yeah. idea uh-huh. that w- women are walking wombs and yeah. everything they, everything they, right. <laughs> and everything they do should be geared towards protecting the womb and protecting the child and protecting the ch- children they've already had. It's such a regressive view of women. One thing that I always wonder is why more feminists, maybe in the US they are, mm-hmm. but why more feminists are not up in arms about the war on mothers, which does strike me as a real thing. There's a really good book by a woman named Kim Brooks who called me <laughs> like, like they all do when she was arrested for letting her kid wait in the car. And, uh, you know, and she was just beside herself. Usually I get, sometimes I get phone calls. Usually I get emails that are like timestamped 310 AM. You know, <laughs> I'm so, and, and they always are this. It's like, you know, I love my children and I care so much and I breastfed till they were 10 and I only give them organic. <laughs> grapes and they're always cut into quarters and then I cut them into sixteenths. But somehow, you know, I knew that my kid was going to be fine. He had a cold. He finally fell asleep. He'd been crying. I let him wait in the car for the three minutes I went in to get the Tylenol. I came out and now I'm arrested. And 
they get it. <laughs> you know, that's their, their light bulb moment. It's like, wait a minute, I'm as good a mom as I can be. And I'm still being called a terrible mom who put my child in danger. No, I didn't. So Kim wrote this great book. Um, and then she had an article in the, the New York times that was sort of an excerpt from it talking about, you know, she was trying to explain to her father that she got arrested because what if somebody had come and kidnapped her kid? Her dad said, well, you know, if, if I leave the house and somebody comes and steals my TV, it's not usually my fault, <laughs> you know, but somehow we're just eager to, you know, we look for, we look for reasons in the world. We look for reasons that bad things happen. And, and especially like we were talking about before, if you can't say, you know, there's a reason we can't understand it's beyond human understanding. If you can't say that, then you have to say it's all the yeah. mom's fault. Yeah. And moms go around knowing that. And it is a feminist issue because it's generally, it's considered the mom is supposed to be the protector and the, the mother hen. And I think that people are recognizing that that is a feminist issue, but I wouldn't say it's the top 10. Right. Um, I want to ask you briefly about expertise and the tyranny of expertise mm -hmm. in this area. Because I've always thought to myself, I'm willing to accept expertise in relation to you know if a doctor needs to fix a broken limb mm -hmm. i want an expert to do it i want someone right, who's right, studied right, right. for years and years yeah. and years and knows what they're doing or if someone has to welder, fix right? yeah right? and if someone has to fix my iphone you want an expert that will right. make sense but the whole idea of a parenting expert makes no sense to me at all because it's that strikes me as an area of life in which almost by definition it is a private relationship it's a private relationship that taps into the community in an ideal situation but it's not something where someone can just fly in who doesn't know you doesn't know your children mm -hmm. doesn't know your income or your uh, how you live or anything or your at all, sense of humor or, or what, what you want to do with your life are, or anything yeah. at all and yet can dictate to you in the minutiae of how you should raise your children so, so how did this preposterous idea of a parenting expert come about well, it sounds like we're talking about two different things. One is all the advice that's out there, which is just a tsunami and it's, it's just too much. And, you know, I've been a freelance writer. We have to write these articles from time to time. I mean, there are articles on how to hug your child. I usually, when I go in lectures, I bring my parenting magazine that has how to hug your child. By the way, it's chest touching, face to face chest touching, which is a big boon. You know, hadn't had a clue about that. It was like, I was always hurting my arm. Um, and it should be about three seconds. Uh, so there's this crazy advice industry out there. I really feel like part of the problem with our culture, and then I get people saying like, all you do is talk about the problems of the culture. So we'll talk about solutions after this. But um, one of them is that we expect like a, a tips for, you know, how to do things. When I was, once I was talking to a lady about literally what we were talking about before, how dirt is good for kids. You know, it's good to play in the mud. You get antibodies or whatever. Plus it's fun, you know, sensory, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And she said, okay, so how about some tips? And I was like, for what? She's like, get your kid to play in the mud. I'm like, that's dead air for a reason. I, my, I refused, <laughs> you know, Nobody should have to look to a magazine to explain how to get your child to go play in the mud. And nobody needs 10 tips on how to make a, a safe costume for your child at Halloween. And nobody needs 10 tips on how to get them to eat more broccoli. It's just 
you can you can muddle through. You can do it. Yeah. I have every <laughs> every confidence that every parent out there can do it or they can ask a friend. You know, you don't need the encyclopedia of Halloween costume safety before you venture to make a, you know, a, a ghost costume. It just you just don't need it. So there's something weird about a society that has convinced us that everything we're considering doing is a difficult, we probably can't muddle through. And if we make a mistake, it's fatal. So here's how to do it right. Mm. So that's, that's, I think of like as the, uh, the advice industry, mm. but the idea that there's one right way to raise your kids at all is obviously preposterous. There's so many different kids and so many different ways and so many different countries, so many different eras, read any book from any other era or any other country. And you're going to go, wow, they do it that way. That's crazy. You know? And then the, the, the expertise, when it becomes like codified into rules, I've heard from daycare centers. There was a daycare center out in Washington state where they were digging up, they dug up and got rid of their swing set. And the owner said, I can't deal with these bureaucrats anymore. Um, And he was complaining because they had the little swings for kids where they just stick their legs through, right? And so they had to get rid of it because supposedly their children were spending too much time in it and they were going to be fined um, and found, uh, you know, just as a terrible daycare center because they had kids in these swing sets. So I called the the bureaucracy and I talked to the lady who, you know, had run the committee that had come up with the standards. I said, why did he have to get rid of the the baby swing set for the babies? That just seems crazy. And she said, oh, no, it must have been that they were leaving the kids in the swing set and that was bad. And so they were neglecting the kids. They were just slumping in the the swings. And that's why. Because, of course, we love children swinging. We think it's great. So I called back the daycares and I said, well, you must have been leaving the kids just slumping in there for a long time. And that's why you were marked down as a good daycare center. He said, no, that's not it. And then they sent me the checklist from the investigator, from the person who had come to see them. And anytime a child is in an enclosed space and the the swing was considered an enclosed space, the clock starts ticking. Literally, there's a stopwatch and they count how many minutes the child is in the enclosed space. And so if the kid was in the swing for 17 minutes, that's already 17 minutes that you've basically been putting the kid in Romanian orphanage type situation. <laughs> and then there were like another three minutes when the kid would be in the, the caregiver's arms, which of course is enclosed space. And so here was, I'd say a bureaucracy with good intentions. They didn't want the kids left like the Romanian orphans, just sitting in a crib for 23 hours a day. But by turning it into an expert number, you know, not more than 20 minutes of enclosed space, the kids could no longer be in a swing and they could no longer be held in arms. So there's something awful about taking the normal human relationship out of child rearing, whether it's me raising my own kids or me having my kids at a daycare center or with anybody else and and trying to codify it is exactly right. The, The daycare center was also marked down because sometimes when the the, the ladies were changing the diapers on the kids. They weren't talking the whole time. And, you know, you're supposed to have three million words by the time <laughs> you're two. And so if they were just, you know, humming or something, that wasn't as good as saying, now I'm lifting your legs up so I can put the cushioned, um, you know, diaper underneath your bottom. Or as some would say, the rear. Rear starts with R. Now I'm putting, you know, it's just... <laughs> It's a good idea to communicate with your kids, but different societies do yeah. it different ways. And you, the idea of turning it into a codifiable, perfect, you know, way that you can perfect it 
is crazy. Absolutely. Completely agree. And that leads nicely onto my last question, which actually does touch on solutions. I think it's absolutely fine and actually essential that you talk about the problems with the culture. Uh, I think that's a really important thing for everyone to do. But in relation to the solutions, it strikes me that, you know, there are unintended consequences of all this stuff for children and for parents, particularly mm -hmm. mums, and also for society. Because mm -hmm. if we are creating a new generation which is less willing to take risks, um, values freedom less than earlier generations did, then it seems inevitable that society itself will become a bit more stilted and unfree and depressing. Um, so that's bad. In relation to the solutions, I asked you earlier about why reason doesn't always cut through in these debates, but there must be something we can do. There must be something that groups like Let Grow can do mm -hmm. to upend some of this stuff and at least point the way out towards a freer, more relaxed form of parenting and family life. Yeah, thanks. That That's exactly what we're here to do. I feel like for 10 years, I was free range kids, right? And I went around the country and sometimes the world and talked about all these problems and people would all nod along, you know, and then I'd come back a year later and nothing had changed <laughs> because you can't be the only person sending your kid to the park when there's nobody else for them to play with. They haven't learned any games. Somebody's calling 911 to say there's a child loose in the park. <laughs> what are they doing there? Where's their mother? And so um, what what like Grow is dedicated to doing is rather than just changing minds, we really, we really want to change behavior. And I read a great quote the other day that said, um, let's see, a change in behavior leads more often to insight than insight leads to a change in behavior. Right. Just so true. So hooray for the insights, but let's talk about the behavior changes. So Let Grow is doing a bunch of things. One is we're a gathering place where if you are feeling like you want to give your kids some freedom or you're sick of being worried about what other people think of you if you want your kid to play outside or walk to school, here's a place where you can talk to each other um, at letgrow.org. And also we have a Facebook page called No More Helicopter Parenting. We chose that for SEO reasons. But it's great because people go there and say like, you know, I want my seven-year-old to go and play outside, but he'd rather stay at the, on the couch all day. Anybody have any solutions? And it's just a place where these non-judgmental people, usually, <laughs> um, can gather and talk. You know, I, is my four-year-old too young to play outside in the, in the backyard by herself? Stuff like, oh, I let her do it, and here's what I do. So it's great. There's a community that we're building there. Um, we're working on laws. Last year, Utah passed the first free-range parenting law, which says it's not negligence to let your kids... Um, walk to school, play outside, wait briefly in a car under some circumstances, or come home with a latch key. It's a great law, and it helps you know both the parents who want their kids to you know go outside and you know climb a tree and learn risk taking, and also the moms who are working two jobs and have to have their kid come home at age seven, eight, or nine and sit there for a couple hours, you know, watch TV and eat a snack and do their homework before she can get home. So whether by choice or by necessity you're taking your eyes off your kids, a law like this is very helpful. And we're working on trying to get those you know, similar laws passed in a bunch of different states. And, and if you go to letgrow.org and you look up at the bottom, it says laws, there's model language and there's a, like a myth versus reality fact sheet for lawmakers to see it's not less safe, it's more safe now and it's better for kids and all these. There's just a lot of resources there. And then we have a couple of initiatives that we're doing in schools. Um, both are free. Everything we do is free because uh, we're a nonprofit. And one is the Let Grow Play Club, which is asking schools to stay open after school for three hours or however long they can, or sometimes some schools are doing it before school for free play 
with all the different mixed age kids. Cause that's when you learn all the stuff we were talking about yeah. before, how to compromise, how to make something happen. You're bored. Let's play the game backwards. Let's vote. Is this going to work or not? I mean, it's, you're learning democracy. Mm. You're learning how to read somebody. If they're bored, you know, we better change it. You're learning even how not to be a bully because nobody will play with the bully. And so, and if you have mixed ages, then the nine-year-old who's really awkward and doesn't have a lot of friends um, gives piggyback rides to the six-year-olds and suddenly coming to school is a totally different experience for him, right? It's great instead of awful. And actually in the schools that do the Lecro Play Club on one certain day a week, attendance goes up. There's waiting lists for kids desperate to get into the Lecro Play Club just so they can play. And if you put out tape and boxes and balls and jump ropes and junk, suitcases or whatever it's even more fun because kids just come up with stuff to do and they get into this rich deep play which just turns on the kids the way we were talking about before that you know the the brain forest is back there it's it's flourishing so you know we have if you go to our site and you click on schools there's a video that explains the play club and then even easier than the play club is the let grow project which we're just doing a video about now it's great um which is kids are given homework to go home and what they have to do is um, their assignment is to do something without your parents, right? <laughs> which sounds like, oh my God, in any other era and in any other country, this would sound absurd. But here it's transformational. I mean, kids finally, you know, they play outside, they make dinner. Um, sometimes they help their parents that, you know, they do everything from do the laundry to run an errand to babysit, walk the dog. And really, the parents need this push to to separate from their kid. They don't know when they're allowed to let their kid do something on their own because nobody else is. And But if you have an entire school, then you're not the crazy mom. Everybody's doing this. And then the kids have somebody to play with when they go outside. And we've heard stories of like one town where the te- the, the principal went home the same route she's gone home for 17 years. And it was a week after they'd done the project. And she saw two kids on bikes and one on roller skates and one on a skateboard. And she said she'd never seen kids outside on their own before. 17 years. One week later, in one town, a kid went to the grocery, a little market, all the parent, all the, all the people there are like, what's this kid doing here? They asked him, what are you doing here? You don't have anybody with you. You know, where's, a, where's your reminder? And he said, oh, it's my like road project. I'm like, huh? And he's like, oh, I'm supposed to do something by myself. It's my homework. And they're like, all right. But then other kids started coming. And now it's like, oh, it's a let grow kid. Oh, what do you want? And so it's just renormalizing the idea that you don't have to be with your kids all the time. And if you do it as a, a school, then your whole community is renormalizing that. Lenore, thank you very much. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.